Welcome back, friends, to the Mark Claire Show. It's Monday. That means it's time to start your week right with another great conversation with your guy, your boy here, Mark Claire. Got an awesome one today with my friend Tommy Sammons from the Year Zero podcast. It's a hell of a conversation all about ESG. You guys are going to get a lot out of it. Before we get to that, you're going to get a lot out of what I'm going to tell you now. You're going to get potentially play your cards right some amazing coffee like these bags i'm holding up that you can see if you're on the video here i got my den blend dark you see it's almost empty because i've been going through this thing as well as the brand new only had one cup of it and it was amazing costa rican honey prep you can check out all of these fine coffees from my man stephen fox longtime uh lions liberty fan that came over supported this show from the very beginning and stephen's a great guy he started this company fox and sons coffee uh, in order to share his love of coffee and teach his sons about entrepreneurship all to really be a good man to better his sons, to have an activity to do with the sons, teach them about business. I think it's a wonderful thing. So a great thing to do if you enjoy this show, if you like coffee, is to support our man, Stephen Fox. And to give you a little incentive, I'm even going to hook you up. That's right. I'm going to hook you up with some Mark Claire bucks with a little discount. Use discount code MCS over at foxandsons.com. That's Fox. N Sons, the letter N, F O X, the letter N, S O N S dot com, foxandsons.com, discount code MCS, think Mark Claire show will get you 18% off a bag of your choice. So check it out. With that being said, enjoy my conversation with Tommy Salmon. With me today is the host of the Year Zero podcast, as well as, if I do say so myself, I don't have any statistics to back this up. I'm just going to say it because I believe it to be true. He is the number one most well-researched most well-researched human being on the topic we're going to be discussing today on ESG. He is the great Tommy Sammons. Tommy, welcome to my show. What's up, man? I don't know. You tell me. What's up with you? You got, you got dog problems, duck problems. There's always something going around on, around in your place. No, no problems. I mean, I, I did move. I mean, I'm dirty as hell because I moved. Uh, I moved my baby ducks uh, last night to a new coop, and then I moved my baby chicks to a new coop. And so I've been. I see, I knew you'd them. have a duck story. <laughs> yeah. So the ducks have figured out because I, I changed their watering situation because I wanted to give them a little swimming area. So um, I, I changed their watering situation, and so they figured out how to make mud, and so they they're covered in mud and they're happy so i mean what can i say what can you say well if you can make a duck happy i don't know you can probably make there's probably some phrase there that we could we could think of i don't know what it is but it says something about you i'll I'll say that uh but tommy before we dive a little bit deeper into uh, the topic we're going to look at today esg something probably a year and a half ago i didn't even know what it was maybe i heard about it in passing now thanks to you and some other people out there but primarily you uh, i know a lot more about this topic we'll get into that in a minute but first i w- just want to get a little more background on yourself tell me about tommy sammons how did you get where you are today and tell us a little bit about what you do on the year zero podcast yeah okay so um i'm a truck driver uh, been driving truck for 20 20 years now jeez i'm getting old um, I have five kids. <laughs> I have five kids. Uh, my youngest will graduate this year. And uh, I, uh, I mean, there's not really that much important to me other than I, I always just say, I just bought a microphone and started talking about the stuff I saw going around, <laughs> going on around me. I, I you know, I, I think it's kind of weird that podcasters get such credit and it's like, okay, like all I did was just start talking about stuff publicly that I was already talking about 
you know, with people around me. Um, year zero, I cover everything from conspiracy theories to um, religion and uh, politics of all sorts of natures. I try to uh, keep it friendly as to how you can make changes in your own life to counterbalance some of the things that we see going on around us. So a lot of like a lot of what I talk about is getting out of the cities and, you know, farming. Um, I don't consider myself a Jack, uh, Jack Spirico, you know, homesteading guy. Um, I'm just, I'm not near as well educated on the subject. Brother, you got ducks. You're a lot further along than most of us. <laughs> well, I'm not near as educated on the subject as, as him, but I, I do encourage people to do things and just experiment and try to figure things out. Very good. Well, I mean, what we're going to talk about today, really, it, it might seem like something that uh, might not affect the guy as much who's out there with his own plot of land, uh, homesteading and such like that. You might think that on the surface uh, when we're talking about, you know, financial uh, limitations, financial regulations and that sort of thing. But uh, as we'll discuss today, this thing really is seeping into everywhere. So I just want to start by kind of just doing like an ESG 101. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this subject first came up on your radar and just lay out the basics for us. Like what exactly is ESG for someone who's never heard about it before? Um, you know, explain it like like we're five, like I'm five at least. Yeah, okay. So um, I, I discovered ESG at the end of 2019 is when the acronym first popped up on my radar. Um, I was reading a Time Magazine article called The Great Reset written by Klaus Schwab. And uh, he, he mentioned a couple of things in that article, and I didn't really know what they meant at the time. And one was stakeholder capitalism. The second was ESG. I, I had no idea what either of these things were. I kind of looked into it a little bit, trying to figure out what he was talking about. So I had some kind of background as to what it was, but it really didn't make any sense to me. I didn't see how it mattered to me. Um, then I heard Glenn Beck, I guess it was in early 2020, did an episode about, I think it was Citigroup. Uh, putting um, ESG metrics on the dashboard of of their customers and their 401k holders, and I was like, "Wait a second, why why is that? What what's going on there?" And so I started looking into that, and I ran into um, a lot of information based off of that alone, and seeing how it was it was being tied to investors and spe uh, specifically corporate investors at the moment but it was it was slowly creeping into 401k's and that it was going to affect everything that you did outside of your financial um outside of the financial side of things and they were utilizing the financial market in order to lean on you to force you into living or thinking or acting a specific way so it was um, basically weaponizing uh, the banking institutions and the financial markets in order to bend your style of living. And um, so I, I started doing research on that. And what I found was um, that in 1971, I believe it was, Klaus Schwab wrote an essay called Stakeholder Capitalism. The entire idea of ESG is based off of that essay. Um, which you can find online in PDF form for free. Um, then in about 2004, the UN got together with uh, the, the top like 18 banking institutions from around the world. And they drew up a white paper 
and was encouraging these banking institutions to adopt this ESG metric. Of course, it was called sustainable development at the time, which everybody has heard about that at at Mm -hmm. some point in time. In 2009, they met in Dubai, I want to say. And in Dubai, they uh, nailed the governments, the, the, the first world governments from around the world, especially Western governments, into giving $100 billion to third world countries in the name of ESG and to move everybody, all these countries, in the direction of ESG. This uh this struck me because in shaping the future of the fourth industrial revolution, Klaus Schwab mentions that one of the goals was to force third world and tribalistic communities into accepting the technocratic state, so to speak. He didn't say it quite that bluntly, but that's what he's talking about. He's he's talking about forcing like the tribal communities into this more technological style of living and to introduce technology to like the Amish and these people, uh, tribal communities and third world countries like such as sub-Saharan Africa, things of that nature. So he was talking about how you can incorporate all these people into this, this market and, and, and put fences around them, uh, geo fencing, so to speak. They will be so much more free living in the city. Right. The 15-minute city. That's my terrible class shot. <laughs> well, and so this added on to like kind of my, like my my thought pattern already. I already wanted to get out of Houston. I always wanted to get out of Houston. I wanted to get out to the country. I always enjoyed the country. I love the country. It's relaxing. It's slowed down. The hustle and bustle of, of cities like, like Houston just didn't do it for me. It was, I found it like stressful it it created anxiety for for my mentality how long had you lived within the city itself i lived well like were you did you grow up in a city or were you did you grow up sort of outside a city and then moved to one as an adult i grew up more in the city than i did out in the country um i was i was born in a small town um in louisiana moss bluff um lived there until i was probably about four we moved to florida lived in Fort Lauderdale for a while. Um, then moved back to Moss Bluff. My mom and my dad found jobs in, um, Dallas. So about six years old, we, I was living in Dallas. Um, I lived in Dallas until I was about 12 or 13. Then we moved to Houston and we lived in the suburbs just outside of Houston. Um, we lived in Bear Creek. We lived in Cyprus. We lived in, uh, Katy, but I mean that if, if for as long as I lived there from the age of six years old <clears throat> or 13 years old till I was, um, in my thirties, I saw basically the city expand and just kind of swallow the suburbs. And so I, it wasn't a place I wanted to, to live. Um, growing up, I always went back to Louisiana, to Moss Bluff, to Topsy, um, all these little small towns in Louisiana to visit my family that's where I would spend my summers. So I always kind of had that connection still with that side of of my family and of my life. And I always liked it more. It was more relaxing, more enjoyable. I always enjoyed nature. 
I was the type of kid that could go sit outside and watch the grass grow and I'd be perfectly happy. And you didn't have that opportunity in the cities. Everything was go, go, go noise all the time. No silence, no, no time for meditation or just, just hanging out. So it, it really is incredible. The difference, even just for me living in, in Los Angeles for 18 years. And now I, I, I it's not like I live in the boonies or anything. I'm pretty darn close to a major city. Uh, and it's, it's definitely what, what, not what you would call like living in the sticks, but even, even just being not in Los Angeles and, and not in the center of a major city, it's incredible how much lower my stress is just not being around, not being in all this bumper to bumper traffic all the time, not hearing all the bumper to bumper traffic, not seeing and feeling just like, the uh, the uh, the demonic forces that at least feel like there are in certain cities, at least in Los Angeles uh, at this point. I mean, it didn't. It, by the time I left Los Angeles, it didn't matter if you were in the worst part of town or across across from the Beverly Hilton. You were probably going to run into some uh, not so savory characters along the way. So I, I definitely noticed the difference just for me. So I can't imagine how much more of a difference it is really being out there like you are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty far out there. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, there is there is um. Beaumont, which is a small city, is is fairly close. It's twenty minutes away, um, but yeah, I, I I have some land, and I I am off of a a farmer's market road, which is fairly busy. That leads into a town of like two thousand people. Um, but yeah, I, I live I live pretty far out. I live pretty close to the Louisiana border now, and so I can go to Louisiana and see my family there if I so so desire. And I'm still close enough to my parents and my kids where if I want to go to Houston and, and see them, I can. So I'm not I'm not completely like pushed out of society, but I I can escape if I so desire. Like this morning, I was drinking my coffee. I went to go check on my ducks that I just moved to the coop out by the pond. And I just sat out there for 15 minutes just staring at the water, you know, and that's nice. I, I enjoy that. That's to me, that's just relaxing. Yeah, I do that on a pond out here looking for alligators, but I, I, I they still have not poked their head out. I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if they're real, but anyway, it's neither <laughs> here nor there. I, I'll probably find out. The day I'll find out they're real is might might be the day I, I wish I didn't find out they were real, but you know, it's neither here nor there. Right. Um, but uh, so yeah, so yeah, continue on, on um, your kind of tale about about ESG here because I, I kind of diverted you with with the city talk, but I there is a, this will circle back because I think. There is something to the the idea that now they are really they almost want to end what the way you're living. They almost want to end the idea of living outside of society or even not living within a city. They're trying to push everyone into cities more and more and more and stack people on top of each other. And I, I don't think that's coincidental to the way that people like you and I feel when we're in the city. And if that if that makes sense. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, and that's exactly where I was going with with this is. Um, I had already wanted to get out of cities. And then I saw like reading on what they're talking about. I saw that the enemy to their plan was the people that live out in the country, the more mm. tribal community oriented people. They actually explicitly state it that way. Yes. Yeah. Like they use the word yeah, enemy. He, no, no, he doesn't say <laughs> enemy, but he says that the goal is to incorporate the mm. tribal communities into the technological system. That's a nicer way to put it. Incorporate sounds yeah. very, very loving. Yeah. He, and he, yeah, he's, he, he writes about it as if he's doing them a favor that once they discover this way of living, no matter how they feel about it at first, they'll find that it's better. But what we know is when they introduce things like this, these propaganda, 
tools into our lives. It's not to capture us. It's to capture our children. The next generation always accepts the, the ongoing cultural dynamics. So in 2015, you had the Paris Climate Accord. Okay. So the Paris Climate Accord, they got the bankers and, and the governments together in the Paris Climate Accord. And they got the bankers to sign on to the government uh, project of cutting green emissions and um, specifically um, signing on to the social engineering or the social justice program that they were incorporating through um, transgenderism and, and the LGBTQ community. The banking institutes and uh, institutions and the corporations signed on to that, joined in. Then Trump was elected. When Trump was elected, he backed out of the climate accord. Now, he didn't back out of the climate accord because of uh, the things that were going on behind the scenes with the banking institutions. He didn't know about that. That stuff was was kind of kept in the background so people weren't paying attention to it. Like the, the PR part of it was like, we're going to save the climate by reducing right. our emissions, this and that. But then on, on top of that, which doesn't make the headlines is, oh, we're also going to incorporate uh, social justice and all these other things into the banking system. Psst, by the right. Way. Yes. Yes. And so when Trump backed out of it, um, it was because the U.S. had signed on to invest more money and, and resources in, into the, the climate arena and into that green governance plan, right? So as soon as he backed out, now the corporations and the banking institutions were left with a decision to make. Their decision was, do we follow the government and follow Trump and just kind of ease back in after his administration, or do we double down and push forward and we speak out against Trump? Mm -hmm. They chose the latter. The, the re and, and, and by them choosing the latter and creating an environment for Klaus Schwab to start coming out and, and speaking out openly against Trump's decision to back out of the climate accord is the only reason that we know about ESG, which was thought up in, in the early 2000s. In a way, no matter what you think of him, you do kind of have to thank Donald Trump, even if it wasn't on purpose, but that issue of the Paris climate accord really brought this whole thing out into the open. Right. Yes. And they have, and, and what we have to realize when we're looking at this scenario and, and, and the battle that we're in, in, in take and tailing and, and, and taking on here with ESG is that they have about 20 years on us. By the time we discovered what was going on, they had already been pushing these these projects for about twenty years. So there, uh, there are a number of steps ahead of the game right now. So I assume, I assume that in some way, like when this came upon, uh, you know, when when you first started sniffing this out, uh, you're almost took on the role of like a gumshoe detective here because you started researching this before, you know, now you, now you will see this sort of in the headlines. Like you have Ron DeSantis yeah. and that are governors speaking out against ESG and divesting and things like that. But even like two years ago, you never really hear, heard of this stuff, but you were already sort of like on the trail at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when I was last time I was on with Pete, we were talking about uh, when I was on his show and, and, in 2020, I think it was either late March or early April of 2020. And I'm talking about this stuff. And he's like, you sounded crazy. He said, you sounded like a lunatic. He's like, I could see what you were saying. And I understood it. He said, but you sounded crazy because nobody else was talking about it. So, so now that, it, that the conversation about ESG is, is more out in the open, like 
what is what are the enforcement mechanisms that exist right now to push this stuff upon institutions or individuals? How is it actually functioning in reality? Okay, so what happened was in March, um, it was early March of 2020, the SEC put together a task force. All right. Um, you already had a lot of financial institutions that were adhering to ESG policies before this. Again, they would call it sustainable development, yada, 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 yada. But so in March of 2020, the SEC put together a task force. The task force purpose was to um, ensure and measure the the way the adherence of the financial institutions into ESG. All right. So the way that they manage this was to control who the financial institutions were doing business with, which corporations they were giving loans to, financially funding, um, who who they were approving for home loans, et cetera, et cetera. So their first step was to start monitoring the corporations and how the corporations were spending money, how the corporations were doing business, um, how many women were uh, on the board of directors, how many trans people were on the board of directors, uh, what was their climate impact? And you can look, I mean, and there are some like really ridiculous things that you can look into. Like if you look at Tesla's ESG score, which is probably the most green friendly car available, their ESG score is actually lower than Exxon Mobil because of the amount of social justice and corporate governance that, that Exxon Mobil adheres to. They have outscored Tesla. Right. Like maybe we spill some oil, but you know, we got like seven trans people in the lunchroom or right. whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we go and we go out there and we make public statements. Right. You know, and, and that's a bit and that, that really is. So like for a lot of people that have worked for large corporations over the over the years, uh, I think many people have noticed more and more, more and more diversity trainings, more and more this and that trainings. Is all of that directly to get those companies higher ESG scores? Yes. Yeah. Those those um those trainings and, um, man, there's, there's so so many places we can go with this part of the, the subject. I mean, I, I have been through some myself without getting into too many specifics, but I have, I was in one that was about like voting rights and voting and they didn't say it, but they all, but said, go vote Democrat. I mean, it was <laughs> short of actually saying it. It's essentially what they were saying. I, I was just flummoxed at like how brazen it had gone. Cause I'd been working in corporations for 20 years. I had seen similar type of here's some HR video stuff, but it seems like there was a, a turn a few years ago, which would line up exactly with what you're talking about, where it went from like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like don't slap women's asses to like, to like, now you have to embrace everybody's this and that. And, and it yeah. definitely was a big change. Yeah. I, you know, and it was, uh, see in 2000 and, uh, see, I joined the military 2001. So it was probably 99 or early 2000. I was working for the, for the carpenters union in, uh, Lake Charles. And, um, that was something they did. They, they encouraged you to go vote Democrat. They would brainwash you. They would like propagandize you about voting Democrat. And then they would give you $50 if you took a day off to go vote. Right. And so, so you're basically, well, I'll take the 50 bucks 50 either way. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, so you're basically getting paid 50 bucks to vote Democrat. <laughs> like that's basically what their whole thing was. 
and so yeah you see this now like everywhere it's it's uh it's just the way it works and uh I, I guess we should like kind of back up just a little bit because I, I I haven't defined ESG for people. And, you know, though it's around in the headlines, maybe somebody doesn't know what it stands for. Um, so let's go there. Yeah. ESG stands for environmental, social justice and corporate governance. Right. So under your vi- environmental, you have like green like um, regulations and, and rules and things that you have to follow under social justice. So the, the just on, on the environmental real quick though, is so that that is probably why too, that suddenly a couple of years ago, I start seeing whenever you buy like an airline ticket, there's like, Oh, here's the green score of this flight. It's a little more expensive, but you're helping the environment. So you might want to look at this flight. I'm like, Oh, okay. No, yeah. thanks. I'm good. And it, it's also, it's also why you hear um, oil companies talking about hit ending net zero by 2050, mm. you know? Okay. Um, especially BP, BP is probably the worst of all of them. BP, um, their, um, their CEO came out a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2021. He came out and he said, um, the rising oil prices is actually good for, uh, BP because it gives us, uh, ex- excess money to invest in other forms of energy. So it's, it's really distorted, distorted the market and the way companies view things. But yeah, sorry, you were, you were in the middle of definition when I, when I butted in. No, that, no that's all right. Uh, in the social justice, I mean, it's like what you see with like uh, Coca-Cola or Gillette running these crazy ads, mm. uh, Disney putting all this crazy shit in cartoons. Um, that would be your social justice side. Um, corporate governance, that would have to do with like um, healthcare and things of that nature. Now, if you if you match the ESG metric and uh, up with, uh, with the geofencing model, which I don't know if you're familiar with geofencing, but the way the geofencing was introduced, it was introduced by Microsoft. And what they did is they started working with corporations. So Microsoft went into business with several corporations and they would require, these corporations would require potential employees to download an app in order to fill out applications and to apply for jobs and to go through the interview process, you would have to add to download this app to your phone. What this app was essentially doing was reading all the other apps and interactions on your phone, right? And it was feeding that information back to the corporation. So then the corporation could determine whether you were uh, social justice friendly, whether you were green friendly, whether you were doing all these things, they could determine by based upon your, your social interactions through your phone, they could determine whether or not you were um, appropriate for the job. If you fit into their ESG model, and were they are they open about that with those people that are, that are downloading? Do the people downloading it think they're just like going through some mundane procedure, or are they fully aware that we're searching your phone for ESG compliance and, and what happened? No, this was something that just came out in two thousand and um, I think it just came out in two thousand and nineteen. There was an article done on it on uh, geofencing and Microsoft. You can look that up. And they were working specifically with corporations. Now, what's happening with the geofencing? It's being introduced into into the the public sector now, or and um, the so the governments are going to be able to begin to use it, which has to do a lot with their fifteen minute cities. Me and Courtney just did a podcast on this the other day, and we can touch in on that if you want to, because it's all related. You know, ESG is just a tool for them to use in order to corral you into their their technocratic system and so so what was happening is people were 
getting turned down from promotions that they qualified for in every other form. They were getting fired for jobs based upon their, their personal interactions, all these things. And they were utilizing the ESG metrics as the model to measure the employees or potential employees up against. Right. So this has all been going on in pieces all over the place. So if you saw what what happened with the Canadian truckers, um, uh, that were protesting up there in Canada and they started getting their bank accounts shut down and they didn't, there are still some today that can't access their funds. They can't access their banking account after it was shut down because uh, their political views do not align with the ESG metric. And, and in that case, they were pro- protesting vaccine mandates. So I guess that would fall under. That falls under corporate governance. Wow. It even speci- wow. specific. I'll find you. I got to find that graph again. I had the graph. I had downloaded the PDF. I have it on my phone somewhere. I'll, f- I'll try to find it and send it to you after after we get done here. So what is the, I mean, we all know there's more than just surface level logic to this stuff, but what is the purported logic of how imposing vaccine mandates upon employees falls under corporate governance? How does, how does that work? Because it's for the safety of all the other employees. So it's considered so, a safety so, measure generically. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Health and safety is what it falls under. Mm-hmm. So for, yeah. for them, it's the same as, you know, making your employees wear a hard hat on a construction site or something. It's forcing them to take a, a, a COVID vaccine. Except there's no OSHA regulation that, that will fine you if you don't do it. You, it was all done voluntarily. And the reason it was done voluntarily is because they found out rather than fine them, let's cut off their future financial investments. So how does, how does ESG work in terms of like, how do individuals see it? I, I kind of made up a couple things that I, I've noticed in my own life, you know, whether it's corporate trainings or, or seeing the little markers on, on flights you buy, but what are some of the ways that it's actually maybe affecting the lives of individuals on the day to day that they might not realize the reason behind these things that are popping up in front of them, that it is actually ESG in the background, um, sort of creating that environment. Well, the, the easiest one to explain, and, and it's I heard Vivek Ramaswamy explain it perfectly, was the um, the banking institutions are taking your money. The, the government is taxing you and taking your money. And they're investing your money in projects that cost you more money. So so imagine like the, the government takes your money. And they put that into the pool of $100 billion that is being sent into the green market in order to force to increase the price of gas and therefore limit the amount of gas uh, propelled vehicles that are being driven on the road, forcing you into a position where you have to buy an electric vehicle, which costs you twice as much money. So you're spending more money on gas. You're spending spending more money on the transportation uh, as far as getting another vehicle, and you're spending more money on electricity because of the charging mechanisms that go into charging an electric vehicle. So they're taking your money, investing it in areas that are then creating a market propulsion into which your money is worth less. And then, so what about... On that's more like on the uh, the environment uh, electricity side of things. What about on the social side, the social justice side of things? Where what are some examples of how we might see that in our day to day life? Okay, so what you would see there is you would see, let's say, um, they would uh, the the banking institution that you're you're doing business with, or Amazon, or the places that you're that you do business with, are 
then um, they're advocating for and encouraging um, positions, political positions or social positions that you disagree with. We saw this with Carhartt. Remember this? I don't remember that one. The, all right. So Carhartt is is a, a, a clothing company and Carhartt's really, really well known as to being a company for the working man and the blue collar worker. Right. And they were in, they were, they were doing advertising and they were, they were speaking ill about people that didn't agree with the trans agenda and this, that, and the other, and they were giving money to the trans agenda. And there was this whole big mess about uh, with the working class individuals beginning to burn and protest and boycott Carhartt. Now I didn't, it hasn't turned into anything. The tractor supply down the road, still number one clothing company that they sell is Carhartt, right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't, it's not like their clothing got taken off the shelves, but so they will intentionally go against what you stand for and they will still benefit from the profits that you are feeding them. We had Coca-Cola do this. We had Gillette do this again, Disney Carhartt. And we see this with all these companies that, that are, They'll take, they're going to take your money. They're going to take the profit. You're already addicted to that product. You're addicted to Amazon. You're addicted to Netflix. You're addicted to Coca-Cola. You're addicted to Gillette. You're addicted to Disney. You're addicted to Carhartt. You're going to continue to buy that. They know this. This is what Edward Bernays was laying out in his book, Propaganda. How do you get these people addicted to this and you propagandize them and move them? Right. And so they know that you're still going to spend money with Amazon. I spend money with Amazon twice a week. I know I do. And I know I shouldn't. I'm like, no, I should go to the directly to the seller, directly to the manufacturer of this. And convenience is how they get us too. that's also how they're going to sell the, the 15 minute cities or what have you. But and it works because you and I are aware of this and having this conversation. I just picked up three Amazon boxes outside my door this morning. You know why? Yeah. Because I didn't have to leave my bedroom to get them. Exactly. Exactly. Amazon. Amazon does not ship toilet paper to to uh, like Puerto Rico with no shipping cost because it is a good financial model. They do it because they can then get you addicted to purchasing from them and they can bend your lifestyle and change the way you you live based upon your spending habits. Mentioning Disney there is, is pretty interesting too, because I know a lot of people who see things like you and I, and I'm not even saying, I'm not judging either, like, by the way, because I do, like, we just talked about the Amazon example. We all do a million different things that that go against our, our beliefs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people who are against Disney and and the the trans stuff there and, the, and they've been pushing and the stuff with DeSantis. And next week you see him at the Disney World taking all these pictures and hanging out with Mickey. And I think that's just a good example of like, we, we almost separate the two things. We might be right. viscerally opposed to what they're doing, but we all grew up with Mickey Mouse and all these nostalgic feelings. So it, that's it's almost impossible to separate that that away. And, and like you said, they know that. Well, in our people are our age that that kind of grew up in the genre we grew up in politics and personal life are two different things right yeah but we've entered an age to where they've intermingled mm -hmm. and they overlap to such a degree that you can almost do nothing without it being a political state. My dad actually told me um, recently, like he has a best friend of his who he's known literally since he was 15. They're still friends like 65 years later. And he said, I actually have no idea what his politics are because we just don't talk about that. And that just blew my mind Yeah, <laughs> to not even yeah. have an idea.
Yeah. And I mean, I probably up until, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I really didn't know what my dad's politics were. Mm -hmm. Right. It was like, it wasn't something we ever talked about when I was growing up. Meanwhile, I do know my dad's and I know he's very opinionated. So that's what strikes me even fascinating that he can be so opinionated and I can know like ever I can recite anything, any political question you might have. I could recite what his answer would be to you and yet never comes up with with a friend of his. But I think that does speak to this, how that was seen in the uh, in the before times in the the older generations. You know, your politics is is what you talk about in your personal life. Maybe it's what you have your own opinions on, but you don't bring it to the to the table where you're breaking bread with friends and family. Right, right. Yeah, religion and politics are two things you don't talk about in in good company is is what I was always told when I was a mm-hmm. kid growing up. Because people get so amplified and so so like defensive about these things because they're so tied to it. And and people didn't want to offend each other. They just wanted to go along to get along and live their life and that was used against people by the totalitarians by the authoritarians that if they could separate the p- personal life from the political life, then they could do all these things on the person on the political scale that would invade your political life. And by the time you, I mean your personal life. And by the time you realized it, it was too late to act on it. Interesting. Interesting. Because, because now it almost seems like, whereas once we were able to separate that uh, now especially going on 2020, 21, 2022, suddenly things like vaccines and your position on BLM and things like these are, these become Thanksgiving topics that you have to pass a certain test for to even get invited to Thanksgiving dinner. So somehow in a very short time, ESG went from corporate governance to the holiday dinner table. And that happened seemingly overnight, really with, with the Kuvi. But I had a good friend back in 2017 and, uh, we had gone to concerts together. It was somebody that my wife and I would go and hang out at concerts with. And we went and saw a few concerts with this guy. We were good friends and he stopped talking to us based upon our politics. And it was like, come on, man. Just because I I don't necessarily like Trump, I mean, and there, there are some bad things, and we should all be watching politicians very closely. You can't trust these people, but he had put such like kind of a like messianic demeanor around Trump that he he just you couldn't reach him. How much of this ESG creep? starting with the corporations and and ultimately invading its way into our personal lives. How much do you think that effect of separating family and friends is a more of a feature, not a bug of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, If you, I mean, if you get back into like Thomas Malthus, like, which is something that I'm reading on, on uh, my podcast for my uh, paid subscribers. And um, we, you know, Malthus, was was talking like about introducing you know vice and misery to the population to cut down on 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 the growth of population so that the resources could then be extended right and if you go back there's a there's a memo that came out in the 60s called the Jaffe memo in which they talk about you know in, in introducing um higher rates of divorce introducing um, that the gay agenda, the homosexual agenda, 
into the population, introducing all these things in order to cut down on um, like one of the one of the other things that he mentioned was um, abortion on demand. And it was to cut down on the population growth. And this was an internal Planned Parenthood document called that's that's well known as the Jaffe memo. Yeah, I mean, and it seems this the, the things you're describing have been slowly creeping into uh, culture and media for a, a long time. I mean, my wife and I, uh, all right, I'm going to re- reveal myself here. We were watching Friends last week uh, from the 90s because it is pretty damn funny and a lot of it really holds up. But w- one thing that really stood out to me is is how much things like divorce abortion, uh, having separated parents. It just comes up so casually so often. And this was really a trait of a lot of 90s hallmarks to me. And of course, at the time, I wasn't thinking about any of this nefariously. In fact, I probably thought all that stuff was fine. I knew a bunch of kids that had divorced parents. Uh, it seems like it, it was always just trying to be put there to to normalize these topics. And now, of course, you know, the adults that were raised then most most adults um, don't think any of those things are remotely taboo or things to be ashamed of or or anything, anything but positive things. And I just wonder how much that is just due to the the cultural creep of, of slowly inserting this um, Bernays style in there to the point that it just normalizes us, normalizes these things without us realizing it. I haven't looked at the I haven't looked um, at, at the statistics, but I would be interested in going back to like the 70s uh, prior yeah. to Reagan um, signing in no fault divorce and then post uh, no fault divorce and seeing what the change in the divorce rate actually was. And I wonder if you could simultaneously track that with like mentions of divorce in media or in sitcoms or in films, because I'm sure there's just a straight, you know, a straight line connecting all of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm still surprised that, um, Al and Peg Bundy stayed married as long as they did. (laughs) That is an impressive relationship right there. I, I got to say, um, <laughs> um, hell of a show married with children that, that would never be made today. That would not pass ESG scores uh, no. whatsoever. I don't, I don't think, um, so you know, everything we're talking about here, I think at the end of the day, especially for people that are, I don't know, of our somewhat somewhat of our side of political things, we would see a lot of these regulations and things as negatives. But just just to play devil 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 devils devil's advocate, I can't even say the word devil. That's how uh, that's how pristine and holy I am. Uh, devil's advocate for a second. Um, there will be people that might listen to this or that I might be, you know, friends and family and that kind of thing that might hear about what this is on the surface and say, well, of course it's a, why is it a bad thing? If corporations are held to some standards here, why isn't it a terrible thing if they're rewarded um, for having, you know, for taking care of the environment better? Why is it a good thing if they're rewarded, uh, you know, for, for recognizing the diversity in our culture? Now I know the answer for you and I, uh, but what would you tell to somebody who, who just has more, of a normie view like isn't even taking a political take but just sees this on the surface level who when they when they look at this on the surface don't don't really see anything insidious or nefarious the fact that the the that the federal government can dump tons of money in order to bribe corporations into this regulatory capture um, aspect into which the corporations only work within a certain segment of society and therefore cut off and ostracize the other segment of society um as a as a weaponized and a militant arm of the government is is pretty 
dystopian if you ask me <laughs> like even if you I might agree see, with the the ends or what have you right yeah i i don't i don't see how a person would be able to defend the the government in encouraging corporations to completely ostracize and neglect a segment of society not based on merit but based upon opinions and this is the it, it, it totally cuts in. See, this is the thing about ESG that is so so horrible and, and that people just tend to miss. What ESG has done, it has given the government a go-around of the constitution. Mm -hmm. They could not discriminate against you based upon your political opinions and freedom of speech, your freedom of religion, these things. What they can do is form this public private partnership otherwise known as fascism and and convince the corporations to discriminate against you and then they can pull their own it's a private company bro exactly <laughs> and this is what we saw with social media um for so long in the libertarian sphere oh well they're kicking all these people off it's a private company bro okay stripe refused to process alex jones credit uh card app um, purchases. Well, it's a private company, bro. They don't have to pay them out. They don't have to do business with Alex Jones, but they were doing it all on the behalf of the federal government. And after the Twitter, Twitter files have come out and we've seen how closely the federal government was working with Twitter to determine who could and could not speak, how can you continue to call it a private company? Not to mention that you, you've seen since 2009, there have been articles coming out about InQtel and the funding of these social media companies from the CIA and the federal government. What part of that tells you it's private? Where do you see all this going, Tommy, in terms of, you know, how, I mean, it has just escalated incredibly over the last two to three years to the point that it, it, once, at least once you're aware of it, it's hard not to see it pretty much everywhere. It's kind of like a cult symbolism. Once you, once you know about it, you see it everywhere. Once you know about ESG, you see it everywhere. You can tell you now, now a lot of commercials you see make more sense. Advertisements, things pushed upon you by, by corporations yeah. or what have you. It, it makes so much more sense. So it's hard not to see it. Uh, so where do you see this going in terms of, of how it's going to continue to affect our lives going forward? Do you see the sort of corporate governance scores morphing in, into more of a China style social credit store where it actually will affect individuals? Like, well, I have to have an ESG score and then that determines who I can bank with if I can bank at all. And of course, I know that you are well aware of the CBDC, CBDC topic and how they are trying to bring in central bank digital currencies as well. And so maybe you can tie in how that could, how that could relate to this whole thing. Yeah, that's exactly where my mind was going as you were asking the question. Me too. That's why CBD I asked it. <laughs> CBDCs. Um, okay, so here, here's how I, I look at it. You're, you're going to have um, people that resist. Now, you don't have a choice as to whether or not you get a social credit score. Like that, that, that is not. It's not in your purview to voluntarily join in or out. That is not how this is going to work, right? Um, as long as you are operating within the the current model, within society, you're stuck in that system. What's going to end up happening is you're going to create parallel systems where there are going to be people living in the black market, in the gray market, 
the black market and the gray market are no longer going to be just drug addicts or drug dealers, criminals, so to speak. It's going to be people that have rejected the the ESG metrics and the totalitarian vision of of the community. They're not going to use force in the way that is drawn out in like Brave New World or 1984. That's not the way it's going to happen. They're going to use the geofencing model that I was laying out for you earlier. By Microsoft introducing that to corporations, they were testing the model. They were trying to perfect it so that when they roll it out and you can't pass specific lines because the people on the other side of that line are dangerous. Kind of like, imagine the Berlin Wall. At first, it was meant to keep the dangerous people out, but then it was used to keep the the people of the society in, right? But they use that excuse that, hey, we put up this wall to protect you from those people. They're going to do the same thing with the geofencing model. The geofencing model is going to be one as to your car won't operate outside specific limits. Your your uh, debit card, the chip gets turned off and you can't utilize your bank account outside specific limits. You can't utilize your cell phone outside of specific limits. So you are going to voluntarily keep yourself within the corral that you've been put in based upon the accessibility of your funding. I think the key that you said there too, that a lot of people might let pass by because a lot of people are going to think, well, how are they going to force us to do this? How are they going to make us do this? Why would I want to sign up for the system? Like you said right there, voluntarily, they're go- you're going to want it. You're going to ask for it. Maybe not you or I, but maybe. Uh, who knows? I want the Amazon box, so I'm not going to act like I'm immune to whatever temptations that they might uh, lay out for me. Right. Um, but, but how do you envision people voluntarily welcoming this into their lives? Yeah, I mean it's going to be it's going to be sold to you as it's for your own good, it's for your safety, it's for your security. We're introducing CBDCs to because of the inflationary market is going to destroy all your savings, all your investments, uh your the price of your homes, yada 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 yada. So we have to bring in the central bank digital currency, which can then be tracked and traced and limited and uh the 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 CEO of the I uh or the president of the IMF has even come out and said the great thing about central bank digital currencies is that we can we can then limit the purchasing power we can track and limit the purchasing power so when we saw that that tax go up on sodas in New York a while back and we were like that's ridiculous how can you limit how many sodas somebody buys and tax them based upon their soda purchases well they'll be able to do that they'll be able to they'll have alerts set up within your your bank banking system they will know everything you buy and then when you buy you know when you hit ounce 65 of soda for that week, you know, it gets turned off. You can't buy soda anymore. Now, maybe that, maybe in that case, I might be in favor of it because people drink way too much soda, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But it's not my, I mean, what what business is of it of of mine? I mean, I smoke too much. I drink too much beer. Like it's like, whatever. I mean, I'm not mad at you. Um, and, and then you have like the situation with Biden vetoing this bill here this week. Well, this bill was put into place by Republicans, specifically Marjorie Taylor Greene, if I, if I remember correctly, introduced this bill. And what this bill did was it was to stop the 401k investors from investing your money in ESG approved um, products and services. All right. So basically what she was saying is you have to alert the individual 
that you're you're handling this other person's money. You have to alert that investor into where that money is being placed. And Biden vetoed it, said, no, they don't have to alert you. The, that, the BlackRock or whoever you use for your 401k can put that money wherever they want to put that money. And unless you are like, like constantly keeping up, like my, my dad is very vigilant about watching his 401k, knowing where every dime is put and moving it in himself. Unless you were that type of anal retentive person, which most people are not, you are going to find yourself in a situation to where your money could be, be, be put in a place that is, that is bad financially for you because it is a green or a social justice harbor for the funds mm. and they have they have completely they have come out and openly said our fiduciary responsibility to the investors is not about earning them money but making sure their money is invested responsibly wow. well you can change the the definition of responsibly to include socially responsible as opposed environmentally to responsible socially responsible exactly. now responsibility isn't making you money it's making sure that the companies you invest in have you know 17 trans activists on their board or what have you yeah so so the the key to understanding what is going on and how it affects you is by actually taking on the responsibility of being on top of every little thing that your money touches. Now, when you're like me and you don't have a lot of money, that's easy. <laughs> <Right>. But <laughs> but some people are going to have a lot of problems with this, and they're going to have a really hard time doing this. And and so I would I just suggest that you pay very close attention to your banking institutions, um, to your 401ks and who's investing the money for you and what their beliefs are, what they're advertising, whether or not they adhere to ESG metrics. And it's something to consider if you're going, if you know, if you're moving a retirement account to one company or some habit, I mean, bring that up, you know, do, do you guys comply with ESG metrics? Do you base investing decisions uh, upon ESG or are you just trying to make me money, which is supposed to be the idea here? Uh, it's definitely something right. to be aware right. of that, that most people, you know, before they hear about this topic, would never even think to, to ask. Of course, they're trying to make me money. That's that's the deal, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, in a lot of your local banks, your your credit unions, your small local banks, even some um, some state DAs are actually pushing back against this, and and have caused enough trouble for like uh, Vanguard to back out of the ESG metric scenario. Yeah, Vanguard's like, hey, we don't want any part of this. Now, I don't know if I necessarily buy that they're done with it, or if they're just going to change the way they frame it. I, that I I couldn't tell you. Um, but yeah, um, in November, Vanguard started questioning their position on ESG. And last month, um, they actually backed out of their, uh, their res quote unquote responsibilities, their agreements to, to adhere to the ESG standards for their customers and investors. Tommy, one thing I want to touch on before we wrap up the main show here is I want to really get to the core uh, of what this thing is. And yeah, on the surface, it's what we're talking about. It's ESG. You dig a little bit deeper. It's like Klaus Schwab, the, the World Economic Forum, the UN, uh, these sort of global governance institutions. You dig deeper mm -hmm. and deeper. At some point, 
we got to try to find what what the core of all of this is, and maybe this can tie into something you have not really talked too much about publicly, but it has come up a little bit on your show. You've kind of had your own sort of spiritual uh, and, and religious, I guess, uh, well, I don't know, transformation is the word, but you've been through a, on a process. Let's put it that way. I won't, I won't use journey. I don't want to upset Buck uh, over the last couple of years. So I, I'm just curious how you view all of this that's unfolding at the core, and how do you see this battle, I guess, if you want to call it that, over ESG through a, a spiritual lens? Every um, Everything that has, has occurred from a, a tyrannical standpoint, whether it be social, financial, um, resource-driven, whatever it is, has been... In, in an uh, an attempt to focus the attention of people on the material life world around them and to get their attention off of the spiritual. And as you as you journey into a more spiritual lens, uh, for me, it's Orthodox Christianity. It's not that way for everybody. And I'm not going to sit here and judge and I don't care to do that. It's not my position. Um what you find is that even in a situation where you see like the Pope and Islam and um, the the Jews coming together to create one central um, ecumenist foundation of spirituality, they call it the Abrahamic religion foundation or whatever that is. is that, that's Jordan Peterson's thing, isn't it? That's he's involved with something like I'm, that. I, yeah. I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, no, it's called Ark <laughs> Abrahamic religion, something or other. Yeah. That, that he just yeah, put out last week. Right. Yeah. That see that doesn't shock me at all. I would say it's all in the, in the realm of undermining truth. Cause they're saying now they're saying, well, there's no difference from these religions. And this is, leading to H.G. Wells' vision. H.G. Wells had a vision that everybody in the world would come together under a central one-world religion, he said based upon science, and that the excluding of the cultures and of the different religions and the different denominations would then form the cohesion in order to bring in a one-world government. The ultimate goal of this is to incorporate and to usher in an antichrist system in which there is that one figure that every person is worshiping and and looking to for the answers and the governance of the world. And by distracting your attention and putting your attention on on environmental, social justice, corporate governance. It's taking your your attention away from humility um, and and prayer. And that's that's their ultimate goal. What do you uh what do you envision this person? I say person because maybe it won't be a person because we've seen a lot maybe of UFO not. alien stuff. I mean, this might be something we'll dive into a little more in the smoke filled room bonus segment, but I, I just want to get your thoughts on what, what you see that potentially actually looking like in reality. Do you think this will be a, a politician or something like that? Or, or how do you see that unfolding potentially? Anyway, this is all speculation in this, in this point. I think ultimately, I think ultimately it's going to be, um, 
and and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put the label person on it, like because I don't it know. Might be a, you know, it might <laughs> you be know? Lord Lord Krang or whatever from from the the crab. Right. Nebula. Yeah. There's there's no telling, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit there and put my foot in my mouth and make too many assumptions. But I I suspect you're gonna see a lot of charisma. There's going to be um, a sort of esoteric knowledge uh, that that is laid at its feet, and um, there's going to be a belief that it has answers that um, two things. Now you could take that in all kinds of different directions where it be AI transunit humanism, like whichever I've, I've heard, like people explain it in all kinds of different ways. It'll be like a, a Halman, like we see in 2001. Uh, well, not really in 2001, it's really in 3001, but where, where David Bowman, and we talked about this with, with Jay Dyer a couple of weeks ago, but David Bowman merges with the AI robot Hal to essentially become what is the ultimate AI creator of the new universe. Right. I, I think the ultimate thing that people need to watch out for is be careful for the inventions of man and the creations of man, uh, because man has done nothing but try to recreate the Tower of Babel over and over and over again. Indeed. All right. Well, maybe we'll dig into this concept a little bit further in the smoke-filled room, where we're going to go in just a second. Uh, but first, we're going to wrap up the main show here, Tommy. So uh, before I let you go, just let everybody know where they can find everything you're doing. Uh, I mentioned the Year Zero podcast, but you also uh, write pretty damn regularly on a, an excellent Substack page where you talk about ESG and, and a lot of other related topics. So feel feel free to plug away on everything. Oh, geez, I don't write near as regularly as I More than I, I do. Trust me on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah TommySalmons.com is where you can find my sub stack. Um, I usually put my podcast up there as well. And then um, the Year Zero podcast, you can find me at the Libertarian Institute. So LibertarianInstitute.org uh, forward slash year dash zero forward slash or um, YouTube. Look, look for Year Zero. Rumble, look for Year Zero. You'll find me. You, you can't mistake this ugly mug. All right, Tommy Sammons, thanks you so much for uh, joining me here and uh, sort of enlightening my audience on this topic. It will certainly not be the the first or last time uh, we'll be hearing about it here. So I'm sure we'll, we'll continue this conversation down the road. Uh, but until then, thanks so much for coming on my show. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tommy Sammons. The conversation continued as it always does in the smoke-filled room where Tommy went into detail about some pretty wild experiences he has had that uh, definitely delve into the realm of the spiritual, the supernatural. Uh, even having heard one of these stories before, this is kind of an expanded version, and my mind was totally blown. I really want to get Tommy on the Confessionals podcast to talk about some of this stuff because it really is uh, incredible. Uh, so we delved into a lot of that stuff as well as some other spiritual matters in the Smoke-Filled Room segment that is available for premium subscribers to the Mark Claire Show. You can subscribe on Patreon, patreon.com slash Show. I also have links for Subscribestar, Rockfin, any way you want to support I'm happy with. Even if that support is just listening to the free version, sharing it around with friends, and uh, being an all-around swell guy. That's that's sort enough for me. That's really all I care about at the end of the day. So check out all the links you need over at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Next week, friends, folks, folks, friends, I combined, I tried to combine the words friends and folks into one word. That's what happened right there. So friends and folks, tune in next week. I've got a stellar, stellar conversation for you episode 25 with the one and only 
comedian Jim Brewer. I'm so freaking excited to share this one with you. It's an awesome conversation. And if you want to hear it right now, again, just become a premium subscriber. This one is already available for my primo subs, including the full extended version. The smoke-filled room with Jim Brewer is just absolutely wild and out of this world. So check it all out. Again, you can find all the links to subscribe over at markclair.com. Until next time, my friends. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Thank <laughs> you.